This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Chade Ming Tan, widely known as Ming, was among Google's earliest engineers. Since 2007, he's been running a seven-week personal growth program called Search Inside Yourself, whose mission is to promote well-being and harmony through the cultivation of emotional intelligence among Google employees. Meng has now written a book titled Search Inside Yourself, The Unexpected Path to Achieving Profits, Happiness, and World Peace, to share these tools and techniques with companies everywhere. He spoke with Knowledge at Wharton about his conspiracy for world peace. So what is Search Inside Yourself? Mm-hmm. And what inspired you to launch it at Google? What was the spark? What was the spark? So Search Inside Yourself is a curriculum for uh, emotional intelligence based, based on mindfulness. Um, and the, the way we thought about this, uh, we wanted to create a curriculum that works for adults. And then we had this epiphany that uh, that emotional intelligence you cannot learn by by just reading a book alone. It has to go. It has to, there has to be more work involved. So so there are three steps. It's, it's three steps to developing emotional intelligence in the search inside yourself framework. The first step is to train attention. And the idea is to train uh, attention to to a quality that allows you to bring the mind to, a, uh, to calmness and clarity on demand, right? So like any time of day, like whatever is happening to you, you're under stress, you're being shouted at, you, you have the, the skill to bring the mind to a place that's calm and clear at the, at the same time. And if you have the skill to do that, then it creates the foundation for emotional intelligence. So that's step one, the, the attention uh, uh, step. Step two is, is the uh, creating self-mastery. Right? So the idea is that once you have the, the attention of power, the mind of calmness and clarity, then you can create a quality of uh, self-knowledge or what you call self-awareness. And that gets uh, clearer over time and it develops in, eventually into, some, into self-mastery. Right? So you, you know about yourself enough that you can master, gain mastery over your emotions. So that's the second step. And then the third step is uh, to create mental habits, uh, which are useful for you. For example, the mental habit of kindness, like the habit of looking at any human being and thinking to yourself, I want this person to be happy. That's a habit. Right? So you don't have to think about it. It just comes naturally. And once you have that habit, like everything in your work life changes, right? Because people want to cooperate with you and they like you and it's all like unconscious. It operates at a uh, subconscious level. So, so, and those habits are, are trainable. So this is the whole scheme right, of search inside yourself. And, and what was the spark? <laughs> and embarrassingly enough, uh, the spark was world peace. <laughs> <laughs> so in, in the 05, Onwards, 2005. I uh, so in Google, I was an engineer. Uh, every engineer has a 20% time project. Right? We, we can spend 20% of our time working on whatever we want. And so I figured, if I can do whatever I want, I might as well solve the toughest problem I know, which is world peace. <laughs> <laughs> 
So I started thinking about what are the necessary and sufficient conditions for world peace, and I, like one thought led to the other. And I came to the conclusion that a very important condition for world peace, which I think is necessary but maybe insufficient, is to create the conditions for inner peace, inner happiness, and compassion on a global scale. And the way I want to do that is to make them uh, make those qualities uh, uh, profitable at work for work for businesses and to help people succeed. And my theory is that if we have something that helps people and companies succeed, and the side effect of that is world peace, then we have world peace. Right. Yeah. So so that's why I started thinking about, and then eventually it, it became a curriculum for emotion intelligence, because everybody knows. EI, emotional intelligence, can help me succeed. It's good for my company's bottom line. And if we teach it in the right way, then the side effect is world peace. So, <laughs> so that's why it got, got me started. <laughs> that, that, that's very interesting. How did you make the connection between you know, uh, uh, mindfulness and compassion and emotional intelligence? And why does emotional intelligence matter? Mm-hmm. Also, how did you go about structuring the curriculum to nurture em- uh, emotional intelligence among your colleagues at Google? Uh, so, okay, so mindfulness and compassion. So, uh, as I said earlier, the, 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 the prerequisite or the foundation of emotional intelligence is uh, the, uh, attention training, right? So training attention that allows you to become and kill at the same time on demand. And the way to train that mind is something called mindfulness, which is defined as uh, paying attention uh, moment to moment, uh, non-judgmentally. So it's, it creates a quality of mind, right, which neurologically, uh, you, you move from the narrative circuits of the brain into the direct experience circuits of the brain. So, so the, the part of the brain that keeps going, nah, 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 is, is just quiets down. And then you go to the, part, the other part of the brain that it relates to experiencing uh, sensations and perceptions and, and mental formations of, of volitional thoughts and so on. So uh, the thing about mindfulness is that it's something everybody knows how to do right? because we all already experience it. It's, it's very simple, like moment to moment, non-judging attention. We all know what it is. So the good news is that we can make it deeper. Like with enough practice, we can bring about that mind at a very, at a very uh, a high power, you know, at high intensity on demand. And as you can, as you can already see, that even that ability alone is very, very useful in life. So, uh, but in addition to its intrinsic use, usefulness, it also creates the foundation for emotion intelligence. So, so that's where mindfulness comes in. Compassion is on the other end of this uh, of this pipeline. So, so the way I see compassion, it is a result. I mean, in a way, it's a component, but in a way, it's also a result of emotion intelligence. So, if you tease out the components of emotion intelligence, you find that there are five domains, and and these are five that are defined by Daniel Goleman, which are, I found very very useful. So, so the first three domains are what they call intrapersonal intelligence which is intelligence about yourself. So these three are self-awareness, self-regulation, and motivation. And then the other two domains of emotional intelligence are what we call interpersonal intelligence. So intelligence about other people. 
and the two domains are empathy and social skills. And uh, compassion is integral in the last, the last two domains. So in a way, compassion is a training to develop empathy, but at the same time, it's also the, the output, it's, it's the first beneficiary of training social skills. Right? So, so that's the relationship between compassion and emotional intelligence. Uh, you asked the other question. <laughs> Can you remind me of the other uh, question? How, 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 how did you structure the curriculum to nurture emotional intelligence among your colleagues at, at Google? Ah, okay. Um, okay, how do I structure it? Um, so, so the structure are, are the three steps I talked about earlier, which is uh, uh, attention. Uh, so, so first, train attention. Second, create self-mastery, self-awareness. And third, create mental habits. And, and the way we did this, so it's, in, it's interesting how we solve problems at Google, right? So when I started working on this, uh, emotional intelligence uh, is, is an unsolved problem. It's like, how do we train EI? Like, I don't know. Like, nobody knew. And I'm an engineer. How, what do I know? I know nothing. <laughs> <laughs> so so I, I fell back. Uh, my fallback was to do what Google always does, to solve big, big problems that we don't know how to solve. So easy. We just get the smartest, the best people in the world in that, in that domain. We put them in the room and we figure it out. And then, once we figure something out, we launch it on an unsuspecting audience, and then we figure out what went wrong and we iterate. So it's called a launch and iterate. Mm -hmm. right. uh, and so the way we did this, uh, I had a few friends. One of them was called, her name is Mirabai Bush. She was, the, uh, she was the person who brought meditation into companies like Monsanto. And then I have a friend called Z uh, uh, Norman Fisher, who is America's top Zen master. And uh, we have a friend, uh, Daniel Goldman, who wrote Emotional Intelligence. And a few other people, I just get into a room, right? a CEO. And it, it sounds like a joke, right? A CEO and, and a Zen master <laughs> walk into a room. <laughs> and we just get everybody in a meeting room, for, and then you just figure it out. So, so that, was, that was the whole process. And we released, released the first version and just figure it out. Um, I, I think you also asked, uh, why, why is EI important, right? Yeah. Your other question? Yes. Uh, it's important for three, at least three things. So the first is uh, work effectiveness. So people with high emotional intelligence, they are far more effective at work. And some of it is obvious and some of it is not so obvious. So the obvious parts are, for example, uh, people who deal with customers, like people from sales. So it's very obvious. The more ER you have, then the more you can deal with your customers and then the more you sell, right? Uh, but there are parts, there are aspects that are less obvious. So one of the less obvious aspects is that it turns out that emotional intelligence affects the work, uh, the effectiveness even of uh, individual engineers. So, for example, uh, it turns out that the top six uh, uh, characteristic qualities that distinguish a top engineer from the average engineer out of the top six, four of them have to do with emotional competencies. Hmm. And only two are, are, are cognitive. So the four, if I remember correctly, sorry, I don't have my notes in front of me now. If I remember correctly, I think uh, they have to do with influence uh, and the, uh, uh, an ability, the, 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 what do you call that? Uh, wanting to do good work. And let, me, let me just take a quick look at, at my book. I think it's, uh, yeah, I don't want to give give the wrong information. Oh, there we are. So the first is a strong achievement drive, mm -hmm. right? ability to influence. Uh, so these are the top two. And then the next two are conceptual thinking and analytical ability. 
And then the next two are initiative and self-confidence. And so you see out of the six, only conceptual thinking and analytical ability are cognitive. The rest are emotional abilities. So it's true even for engineers. So, so also, interestingly enough, and I didn't mention this in my book, uh, which is that innovation. For example, there's a research study, uh, I think was reported in the Harvard Business Review, uh, that if you're happy today, then you're more creative today and tomorrow, regardless of how you feel tomorrow. So happiness has a two-day effect. It affects today and tomorrow. And there are like neurological explanations, which I won't go into today. But so, so like an emotional skill like happiness has effect on, on work, on creativity. So that's the first uh, important feature of emotional intelligence, work effectiveness. The second is leadership. So again, the, the obvious part, uh, everybody knows that uh, emotionally intelligent people make better leaders. Uh, we know that from our day-to-day dealing with managers and so on. What is surprising is that this is true, it turns out, even in the Navy. And this has been known for a while. It was a, a paper that, come, that came up from the late 80s. And the, uh, the paper shows that, so, so in the Navy, uh, it turns out that there are like very nice quality, quantitative standards on what makes an effective unit, right? So like, like how, fast, how fast can you get your unit into better order, for example. Right? Things, things like that, very, quant- very objective quantitative measures of if- effectiveness for, for better units. So the question is, how, so what makes a, a unit in the Navy effective? What type of leaders make them effective? So they study the leaders, and it turns out that the best naval commanders are people who are nice, <laughs> who are warm. And, and I have a quote somewhere. Let me see if I can find it uh, about, about those people. Um, let's see. Uh, okay, I have a quote here. So these naval commanders who are more effective, they are positive, outgoing, emotionally expressive, dramatic, warmer, more sociable, friendlier, more democratic, more cooperative, and likable, and fun to be with, <laughs> and so on. <laughs> So, in other words, the best naval commanders are nice guys, like people we want to be with, people we want to hang out with. And this is surprising. Oh, by the way, the, 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 the uh, title of the paper is Nice Guys Finish First. <laughs> <laughs> and this is fascinating, right? I mean, when I think of the Navy, I think of people shouting orders and ordering men, ordering men to their deaths. Mm. So you think that these are tough guys. But however, I mean, they are tough guys, but yet the best naval commanders are people with high emotional intelligence. So, so that's fascinating. Absolutely. So that's the second aspect. The third aspect is happiness. Uh, and I think emotional intelligence creates the conditions for happiness. And I think to me, that's the most important part. I, I want to create happiness worldwide. <laughs> <laughs> So, so, so Ming, what, what tools and techniques did you use to teach emotional intelligence, uh, your curriculum, mm. and which ones mm. worked best and why? Mm. Um, so a couple of things. Uh, the first is that I think it is very important to, uh, to, be, to base your curriculum on neuroscience and data. Or in other words, it's very important to not be fluffy. Uh, if, you fluff, if you're fluffy, you lose them. Mm. So, so for example, if you say everybody just go sit around a circle, talk about emotions, and then just sit and bring awareness to your breathing, it's like half the people leave. <laughs> 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 and, and 
especially the engineers, right? They are like, yeah, screw it, right? <laughs> uh, so, so you have to like show the science. And fortunately, there is good science on this. So there are brain scans, right? For example, like if, if you bring, and we know, we know which parts of the brain it affects. If you bring awareness, uh, sorry, attention to your breathing for a certain amount of time, you train your attention, and then you find that your prefrontal cortex becomes stronger, for example, which is a part of the brain that is, has to do with attention and executive thinking, right, and decision-making. So you, you know you make better decisions. Uh, when you have enough, again, when you do enough meditation, you find that your left, the left side of your uh, prefrontal cortex becomes stronger, and you, what that does is that's a part of the brain that is able to uh, uh, regulate the amygdala. In other words, the, the stronger you are in this part of your brain, the more you can uh, regulate anger and, and power, feelings of powerlessness, like being triggered. So you have a trigger and then there's a certain part of the brain say, whoa, cool it. Right? So this has a lot to do with the left prefrontal cortex. And again, you find that in meditation, mindfulness develops this part of the brain. And then the other practices, like there's a practice called body scan, where you bring awareness, attention to the different parts of the body. And again, the science behind it. Right? So if you do that a lot, you find that the, the part of the brain called the insula becomes stronger, becomes more active and uh, there's other signs to show that if that part of the brain becomes active, the person becomes emotionally self-aware. Right? So there's a brain science behind all of this. So, uh, and not just brain science. You have, there are like signs behind the business aspects of it. So how has the Search Inside Yourself program evolved since its launch? Mm-hmm. What were some of your challenges and how did you deal with them? And what mm-hmm. lessons did that experience teach you? So uh, it started mostly as a medita- meditation program, and and the reason was because uh, because it was uh, started basically by uh, mostly by by Norman Fisher and Mirabai Bush, and they are like very deep meditators, especially Norman. So in the beginning, it was like mostly meditation, and there's uh, 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 words of wisdom from from Norman and Mirabai, and they're very wise people. So the words of wisdom are very good. But uh, yeah, but that was like uh, mostly mostly meditation and some wise content, and it, it didn't scale beyond Norman and Mirabai because it depended on on them being being there. So over time, we had to do a few things. So the first thing we we had to formalize the the content, like things that that Norman speaks off the cuff, which which is always very wise. We we sort of have to make them into into a curriculum content, and also uh, it turns out that just meditation and wisdom is not enough. So over time, we had to add a lot of the science we just talked about. Like we, you know, teach engineers anything. You have to have the data and the science. So, so we started uh, having somebody from Stanford University, a, a neuroscientist by the name of Philip Golden, and then I myself started learning the science. <laughs> mm-hmm. So we ended up having a lot of that, and not just the science, also the business application. How does this apply to a business? And every practice we do, how does it apply to your day-to-day work life? Right. And that uh, for that, so Mirabai Bush herself already has a lot of business experience, and because she was an entrepreneur in the old days, and uh, we also added another CEO by the name of Mark Lesser. So, so we eventually we and and I myself, I was I'm in Google, right? so I I've seen how this work in in my life. Mm-hmm. So, so we ended up adding a lot of uh, business content as well, or day-to-day work content. 
So so that that's how we evolve. Evolve from a meditation program into something that is like emotional intelligence, full of science and and apps, and the language is being uh, taken care of, and and so on. Um, the challenge, the biggest challenge to me was expanding the circle of of inclusiveness to to include the most skeptical people. And so what does that mean? So so if you advertise a class, a mindfulness-based emotion intelligence, uh, the people who are you're gonna attract the most are the most obvious ones. Right? They are the people who do, who do yoga classes, who sit at at the local zendo. Right? <laughs> but but you don't want to just reach these people. You want you want to go beyond that. So beyond that, they are like. Uh, people who are who are open to anything, right? Or the people who read about Zen like when they were in the twenties, so they're open to trying it. But you, I want to go beyond even that. And the people I wanted to reach were the people who comes who who tells who looks at the the, the course description and tells me this is all hippie bullshit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I wanted those people. <laughs> so that was my biggest challenge. I mean, and there was at least one person who literally said, "This is hippie bullshit," with exactly those words. <laughs> so my challenge to myself, which I think I met successfully, is how do I reach even them? And and one thing that I have, I mean, a couple of things I have in my favor. One thing I have is is credibility in in the Google world, because I have been a successful engineer for many years. And so, so even for those people who call this hippie bullshit, they they say, well, well, there's main and there's this hippie bullshit crap, and there's there's some you know there's cognitive dissonance, right? <laughs> so so that at least they're curious enough to see like how how does that work? Why is main teaching this this crap? Right? Mm-hmm. And then once they come in, and that's where I I get their attention for a couple of minutes, and then I can use this, I can show them the science, I can show them the practices, and I can show them the data. I can, I can show them that these are all simple stuff that, you know, like that we all familiar with. Like you know what we already know what's mindfulness. We already know how to create mental habits, and all these are trainable. And I can show them neuroplasticity to show the brain being changed by training, and so on. So, so uh, my bigger challenge was reaching those people, and I think I have been very successful. So how many people have gone through the program now? Uh, let's see, about a thousand. Wow. Wow. Yeah, and yeah, uh, and uh, there are a fairly sizable percentage of them started very skeptical, which is good because, like I said, that's the audience I wanted. <laughs> and, and the lesson I learned, uh, there are a couple of lessons. Uh, one of them is that I think I, I keep repeating these two things: the science is really important, and the language is really important. Mm. Uh, and also, I in addition to that, I discover one thing, which is that uh, you have to tell people why they are doing the practice. Like for example, it's it's not good enough that you tell them, okay, let's uh, bring attention to let's bring let's create for example, let, loving kindness practice. Let's create a thought that uh, that we we wish for the person next to you to be happy. Right? Because if you say that, that's, that's just, they say this is hippie bullshit. Mm-hmm. So you have to explain why you do that. Because if you do that, then you're creating the the mental habit for kindness. And if you do that a lot, then it becomes an instinctive habit. Right? You look at any human being, you will say, I want this person to be happy. And that changes behavior. Mm-hmm. And once you explain that in, in terms of creating mental habits, then they get it. Then they will do the practice. And then you'll benefit. Mm-hmm. So explaining the outcome is very important. Right. Yeah. Now, uh, uh, what anecdotal evidence did you, have you found to show whether mm-hmm. the Search Inside Yourself program is working? And right. as an engineer... How did you quantify the program's effectiveness? Mm-hmm. 
so we do anonymous feedbacks every time we run the class. Uh, and uh, a lot of it, uh, so part of the anonymous feedback is qualitative, like how does, like what happened to you during this class. And a lot of feedback I get, uh, this, uh, and some people use these exact words. They say, this course changed my life. Which is to me mind blowing, right? I mean, imagine coming to work, right, on a Monday morning, and then you take a class, and then it, it changes your life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's like it, this happens a lot. I, I got a lot of students who, whose life has been changed, and sometimes they use different words. They don't say they say, "I see myself and I see the world entirely differently." Mm-hmm. They say, "Now I see myself with kindness." Mm-hmm. Some say, "I I, I see the new me. I, I'm a different person." Mm-hmm. And there are a few who say who told me in person that they got their promotions after SIY. Mm-hmm. And they said they would never have gotten promoted if not for what they learned in SIY. Mm-hmm. And then there are also a few who say uh, they wanted to leave Google and then they took SIY and they changed their minds. <laughs> so, <laughs> so there's a retention benefit <laughs> in addition to promotions. <laughs> so so uh, that's, that's uh, the, the feedback I get. So that's basically the, the anecdotal evidence. Quantitatively, so I mean, like, yeah, you're right. I'm an engineer, right? It doesn't it doesn't work unless it's quantitative. Mm-hmm. So for quantitative data, we have two two main uh, sets of data. One is a uh, satisfaction surveys, right? So on a uh, uh, scale of one to five, uh, rate those few questions. I'm I'm satisfied with what I learned. What I learned was useful to me, and so on. So for satisfaction surveys, we the score has been very high. I've, I've been getting like 4.75 out of 5 or something, which is not bad. Yeah? Mm. I can imagine worse. <laughs> <laughs> Especially for a seven-week class where people come in thinking it's hippie bullshit and, <laughs> and to leave the class with 7.5 out of 4.75 out of 5 is not bad. <laughs> um, yeah, we also have uh, psychometric measures. For example, we have first-person uh, survey measures of things like empathy, uh, things like self-rumination, like how often they keep thinking the same thought over and over, uh, self-perceived stress, uh, self-criticism, and things like that, standard stuff. So for the psychometric measures, again, it's anonymous, but the, the, we, when we aggregate them, we find that uh, statistically, significantly, they improve in every dimension that we measure. Uh, what we don't measure, unfortunately, is and what I really do want to measure is I want to create a scientific uh, con- study with control conditions on how this affects uh, uh, qualities that are directly meaningful to work. For example, uh, I want to create an experiment where you, know, you get half the people to take SIY and half to do like go to the gym, and then five, five or six months later, see how many of them meet a the sales quota. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so that can only be done in a controlled environment with random assignment and so on. And we don't, we haven't done that yet. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.